Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Adam Proctor, your host of the Dead Pundit Society. Uh, I don't normally open the show this way, but I'm told that we have a breaking story here, and I want to get right to it. We're going to skip the theme music. We're going to skip the intro BS. I actually have Syrian President Bashar al-Assad on the line, and he wants to speak to me and my audience about the nature of my guest today uh, on the show. And uh, before I lose him, he's coming in live uh, from the capital of Syria. And uh, so let, let's let's cut right to that. Uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Here, let's see what he has to say. Hello, Dead Pundit Society and host Adam Proctor. This is Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. It has come to my attention that Rania Kalak, the infamous journalist, will be speaking on your show today. And I wanted to send a message from the Syrian people about the nature of this guest. Rania Kalak has been wrongly accused of being a supporter of mine, and I wanted to clear up with your audience that this is simply illogical, and that the Syrian people will not tolerate this kind of threat to our sovereignty? I am an ophthalmologist by training, and I would suggest that all of Rania's critics maybe go and get their eyes checked. Because nobody with 2020 vision would ever suggest for one second that Rania Kalik could ever be anything approaching an Assadist. And I should know, because I am Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. We don't have bear bombs, we have regular bombs, and bullets, and missiles, and I am President Bashar al-Assad. Thank you for tuning into this message. I am here for the Syrian people, and for our institutions, and the, we will not tolerate the kind of threat to our people, such that people say that Rania is a fan of mine. This type of thing will not be tolerated. Thank you for listening. Once again, this is the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host... Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Joining me this week is friend of the show and journalist, Rania Kalik. Rania has spent the last several months since we last heard from her here on the Dead Pundit Society embedded with the popular mobilization forces in Iraq. These are the troops that officially kicked ISIS's ass in that part of the country. And uh, Rania spent the last several months touring these towns that were formerly occupied by ISIS. She has some harrowing tales uh, from the Yazidi people in terms of what they endured there. So stay tuned. You're really not going to want to miss this. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode as I mentioned in the intro, joining me is Rania Kalik. And wow, 
you know, I never expected Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to call into the show. Um, I mean, I know the man maintains extensive networks of secret police and so on and so forth. He spies on and jails political, uh, you know, activists in his country. But I never thought that he'd keep tabs on international podcasts. But there you have it. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not Rania Kalik is an Assadist or whether I'm an Assadist. And, you know, there it is straight from the horse's mouth. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad says that Rania is no fan of his. And he should know because he keeps an extensive list of his fans and his enemies being an authoritarian despot, you know, that he is. On the one hand, while fending off Western imperialism with the other hand, he's a real complex guy, that Bashar al-Assad. But in any case... That should really head off at the pass any of the, you know, debates that are going to be had on social media after this episode about whether or not I, myself, or, or Rania are Asada. So there you have it. The end. We don't. We can skip all that. We can squash the beef before it happens. So, yeah. Well, that's nice. I guess it was lucky that Bashar called in. In any case, this is going to be a two-part episode. Part one, we're going to deal with Rania's hard-hitting expose that just came out in alternate on the gray zone project. That is a reflection of her experience while embedded with the popular mobilization forces in Iraq over the past several months. And she chronicled the, the harrowing tales of the Yazidi people who were genocided by ISIS. And she visited those towns and villages where ISIS had uh, formerly, formerly, you know, occupied some, just some months before. She has a lot of really interesting stories from that. Part two is going to drop on Monday, and uh, that's going to feature some of the debates. Ronnie and I are going to go all the way in. Uh, the <laughs> pro-revolution side, quote-unquote, of the Syrian conflict is in its death throes. It is no longer possible for these folks to maintain that the forces opposing the dictatorial authoritarian Assad regime are comprised of good old golden-hearted liberal freedom-loving Syrians. Uh, in fact, as it has been demonstrated over and over again in my episode with Ben and Rania, Ben Norton and Rania, in my episode with Max Blumenthal, it's been demonstrated that the forces the military forces opposing Bashar al-Assad in Syria as early as 2012 and 2013 have been overwhelmingly comprised of jihadist and far-right fascistic forces. And so that's what part two is going to be all about. We really take a nuanced approach where we are neither for Bashar al-Assad nor are we for this idealized, mythologized Syrian revolution that perhaps never really was. So as always, I'll wrap this up. Check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. This week, I have no exclusive Patreon-only content, but most weeks I do have some bonus footage and things like that to reward my subscribers with. 
So head on over to patreon.com slash dead pundits if you want to support the project. I really appreciate all of you. I love my patrons. I try to hook you all up with lots of good content whenever possible. There's much more on the way. Check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Find me on Facebook. Just search for Dead Pundit Society. You'll find the page. Like it. Follow it. You'll get all of the updates there. So now I'm going to bring you a two to three minute clip. It's a little bit on the longer side, but I think it's really important contextual information. When Rania wrote this article on the Yazidis, I realized that, wow, I've been hearing this name. I know they're an ethnic and religious minority in northern Iraq. They have something to do with the Kurds. They were genocided brutally, you know, genocided by, the, by ISIS when they were at their full strength. But I don't really know anything about their history and I don't know anything about their religion and culture. So this three-minute clip is brought to you by Now This World News. And it's going to bring you up to speed on the Yazidi people. Who are they? What is their religion? Where do they come from? So I'm going to bring you this clip. And after that, you'll see part one of my interview with Rania Kalik. Enjoy. In November 2016, two mass graves holding at least 18 Yazidi people were found near Mosul, Iraq. These are two of an estimated 40 such graves authorities expect to uncover as they seize the region back from the Islamic State. Since overtaking large portions of Iraq in 2014, ISIS has systematically killed thousands of Yazidi people in a reign of terror the UN has called a genocide. So who are the Yazidi people? While the Yazidis are a religious and ethnic minority with as many as 700,000 worldwide, a vast majority of whom live in northern Iraq. Most consider themselves ethnically Kurdish and speak the language. But while Iraqi Kurds tend to follow Sunni Islam, Yazidis adhere to their own religion, which combines aspects of Islam, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism. It's difficult to determine how old Yazidism is. Many scholars place its origins in ancient Mesopotamia, or the beginning of civilization in what is today Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. At around 3000 BC, other religious groups migrated to Iran and India, leaving early Yazidis to settle and form communities. Similar to Christianity and Islam, Yazidism is monotheistic. However, it isn't Abrahamic, as Yazidis believe in a much older supreme god. According to Yazidi scripture, this supreme deity created the universe, then entrusted it to seven angels, chief of whom is Tausi Malek, or the peacock angel. Yazidis see Tausi Malek as an intermediary between man and the divine and revere him for his independence and ambivalence. In scripture, he refuses to submit to their supreme god, who disavows but later forgives him. This story is often compared to the Quran's account of Shaitan, or Satan, and many Muslims accuse Yazidis of being devil worshippers. Their worship of Tausi Malek is why Yazidis have been the subject of marginalization and violence for hundreds of years. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Ottoman and Kurdish leaders attempted to eliminate the Yazidi minority through forced conversions and mass murder, resulting in at least 72 genocides, according to Yazidi scholars. The ethno-religious minority also faced violence under former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein, who targeted ethnic Kurds, among other groups. More recently, in 2007, a series of suicide bombings of Yazidi villages killed more than 500 people. 
Today, the Yazidi population's greatest threat is the Islamic State. In August 2014 alone, ISIS killed more than 5,000 Yazidi men and abducted roughly 7,000 Yazidi women. Their ruthless ethnic cleansing left Yazidi towns completely destroyed, forcing many to flee to other parts of Iraq or even to war-torn Syria. As ISIS has been losing territory, many Yazidis have been able to return to their homes. However, thousands still live in refugee camps. As an enemy to many Muslims and a perpetual victim of religious violence, the Yazidi community will likely not see stability anytime soon. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today, I've got a great guest, uh, Rania Kalik. She is now in Beirut. She's an independent journalist based in Washington, D.C. You can find many of her recent stories on Alternet at the Gray Zone Project. Rania, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's been a while. It's been a long time. I haven't uh, talked to you in uh, many, many months since you made your trek over to the Middle East. Uh, how have you been finding life over there? It's, uh, it seems to be a little bit uh, more secure than life in America these days. <laughs> Is that right? So you're hanging out in war zones. You're hanging out in war zones and you're looking over here, uh, peeping in at American life and you're, you're, you're thankful to be there. Yeah, yeah, I'm not joking. Like I was in Iraq when the um, Charlottesville thing happened and I was like, I think I'm safer in Iraq. Okay, that's a bit extreme, but it's crazy. It- uh, right. It must have been a little terrifying, though. I mean, uh, to be in all honesty here, all jokes aside, to see that happen from abroad. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, okay. It, what does that feel like? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you have like you have ISIS that's kind of like collapsing across uh, the region. And so I don't necessarily like to go to places until ISIS are, has already been removed. <laughs> so it's not yeah, as terrifying yeah. as you think. Um, you kind of like get mm-hmm. used to some aspects of it. But uh either way it's definitely more secure than it was a year ago uh so no not not so terrifying actually no what i meant to what was sorry well no that i mean that's all that's a great clarification but what i meant was it must be terrifying to see what was going on in charlottesville from abroad you're you're wondering to yourself you must be thinking like oh my god what the hell is going on uh back back home yeah yeah no it was crazy it was crazy because you know i'm well i'm first of all i'm from virginia um and uh, I am very, really, very familiar with Charlottesville. And so just to like see that like Virginia was in a state of emergency and just to like see the videos that were coming out. And then I actually recently watched that Vice documentary um, that like 20 minute, like amazing yeah, footage yeah. from what happened in Charlottesville. I hadn't actually seen any of the footage like that before. And it was really fucking terrifying. Like uh, seeing those people, those those guys just like armed the teeth uh, walking around the street, chanting blood and soil. I'm like, what does that even mean? Blood and soil. I don't even <laughs> understand that. Like, it's just like words, like, you know, like yeah, grass yeah. and food. I don't know. But like, either way, it just sounded <laughs> creepy. Blood and soil. Um, and just like talking about how they like want to ethnically cleanse America. I was, like really, really explicitly and openly. It was bizarre. But also I got to say, given the region that I'm operating in, um, it, it, it really did remind me of the kinds of forces that, ha- that that exist here in the in the like the sort of fascist groups. Like, I wouldn't go as far as ISIS, but like Al Qaeda. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, I mean, sure, the sort sure, of rhetoric sure. they were using was not was not like that much of a foreign like it. It wasn't that unfamiliar in terms of where I am right now, and so that's why I kind of found it scary because it's just fascistic. 
Yeah, similar impulses under a different kind of cultural, political, and historical frame or, you know, lens. Mm -hmm. They're refracted differently, but there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah, it's terrifying stuff. But, uh, you know, let's get to the, 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 the... the the theme of the show here we can talk a little bit more about fascism and the parallels with uh some of the neo-nazis and stuff like that later on down the road just uh a couple of days ago the senate u.s senate passed a 700 billion dollar national defense authorization act it was passed by an overwhelming majority 80 89 to 8 i believe among the uh, (laughs) folks who voted for it were our woke liberal centrist heroes cory booker kamala harris and elizabeth warren of course tim kane you know uh, clinton's running mate voted for it that was to be expected (laughs) but this is all in contrast to uh the fact that we have been in iraq now for 14 years. And I was talking to you all fair before we began. I mean, to put that in context, there are freshmen in college who, who entered college this, this fall, right? Who have lived their entire lives only knowing a world where we have been in Iraq, right? So you don't really have any memories before you're three years old. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, so let's talk about the, the, the contrast there. On the one hand, you know, the United States government has $700 billion to throw around uh, for, for uh, you know, flooding uh, the Middle East with weapons to these fascistic uh, <laughs> entities. <laughs> We've been in Iraq for 14 years. It's become part of life. Um, and I wanted to talk about this on the show because the domestic context is this universal health care for all. And the, the woke liberal take is, well, we don't really have money for that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what we do have money for um, in the U.S. And it's also incredible, like you were making this point about how you said the centri- our centrist liberal heroes like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren voted for the $700 billion you know, uh, increase in military spending. Uh, and people, when you say things like that, at least when I say things like that, uh, liberals dismiss me like in like they're just disgusted with me and oh typical Rania always being so obsessed with this one issue um and what's amazing about that is that like at a time when these people are supposed to be the resistance to Donald Trump they're okay with giving him 700 billion dollars more for the for the military like this guy that they say is so militaristic they don't trust him with the nuclear codes but they trust him to oversee an increase of $700 billion for an already bloated military uh, that like just is spread across the world and brings har like brings just like atrocious behavior, conduct and devastation wherever it goes. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it, you were talking about like how there's people, there's kids who've grown up in an, and they've only known in America that's been bombing Iraq, right? It's been like, or even longer bombing Afghanistan. Well, I mean, there are kids. Same, the, the people who are the same age in this region have only known a life, especially if they're in Iraq, where they've been being bombed by the U.S. in some capacity. Um, yeah. Or just their country's been at war, even if it wasn't the U.S. necessarily that was bombing their area. Their country has been at war their entire lives. And that doesn't even go into like the decade before that war started. Uh, when the U.S. was leading um, these U.N.-enforced sanctions that, like, starve people in Iraq. Uh, but I have to say, you know, this is um, this summer is the first time I, I had ever gone to Iraq, and it is a thoroughly destroyed country um, because of ISIS right now. But it's just on the uh, – on, like, the human-to-human level um, – 
it's just, it's, we've, the U S has done a spectacular job just making Iraq an inside, like an, like a place that has very little security and has just like one community, it pits communities against each other. Like everybody hates each other. Um, in Iraq, a lot of people dislike each other. A lot of groups of people who used to get along don't anymore because the U S removed the government there, didn't replace it with anything. Oh, it did actually replaced it with something very sectarian and based on sect. And it just, um, it just, it descended into civil war and chaos and it hasn't ever recovered. And that, and like it opened the floodgates to, to sell off jihadist groups. Um, mm-hmm. and it led to the issue that I went there to cover, which was the Yazidi genocide. And I'm getting off topic now. Um, but no, that's okay. This is asking, good context. It's just, no, it's just people don't understand. Like when you say $700 billion in military spending, like I don't think people understand the level of damage that the U S does abroad. Like how it dis- I mean, when I say the U S has thoroughly destroyed Iraq, it like Iraq is not the same country it was back in the 1980s when it had the highest literacy rate in the region for women. And when it was one of the best places, people went to go vacation in Iraq um, it's not like that anymore. And it's because of several decades of us meddling in that country, as well as literally going in and destroying that country. Um, and wherever the U S has put its hands in this region, you know, it's like Libya, whether it's Syria, I mean, wherever the U S has tried to, to screw its shit, uh, with that massive military budget that everybody dismisses as no big deal or whatever, um, you know, you can't even comprehend the number of lives that are just completely either wiped out or like destroyed, um, or like damaged or just changed completely and shattered because of that budget. Right. And so anyways, that's where I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's what, I mean, it's, it's horrifying to, I mean, you're witnessing this stuff and just to, to the, the weight of the human suffering that, that we have, uh, you know, imposed on that region. But, but we were talking off air about this before. It's not simply just a matter of like what U.S. troops do or what U.S. bombs do or what our advisors do, right? It, 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 it the, the war in Iraq and the, the quote unquote war on terror, right? That spawned this disaster, uh, in these imperialist adventures, has, has completely changed the the ideological fabric of that society. So you were talking about you 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 were having a discussion with a young kid, a nineteen year old kid, and 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 so I, I mentioned in the United States, it's it's striking that there are college freshmen, eighteen year olds, who have only ever known a post. 9-11 world. They've only ever known a world when we've been in Iraq, mm-hmm. right? But but there's there's the there's a the flip side of that coin are the type of children that, that now now young adults who are coming of age in, in places like Beirut and in other other areas in the Middle East. Tell tell us that story about that 19 year old kid you talked to. Well, so I met a guy a few a few like a week ago. I met this 19 year old kid who grew up in Jordan. He's Jordanian, um, but he now lives in like in Beirut because he goes to the American University of Beirut. Um, and he was just telling me and he's 19. So that means he was born and I was having a little trouble with the math here. Don't laugh at me. I think it's 1999, <laughs> I want to say. 90, 98 um, or 99, give or take, whenever. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Like my, I used to be good at math, I swear. Uh, but the point is, okay, so he's born late nineties and you know, whatever your first memories that aren't like developed until you're like three or four is what you can remember. Um, 
Anyway, so this kid's 19 and he's telling me about the education he was brought up under in Jordan. And it's like he was first of all describing to me how it's like uh, it's like an Islamic supremacist education in a way where like you just hate everything else. Like it's like a Salafi almost education, Mm. um, which I was really shocked by. But I guess Jordan does have like a Salafi problem. But for some reason, like people are just too lazy to actually join Salafi jihadi groups. Um, but yeah, beyond yeah. that, he was, cause he was telling me how it was like a huge culture shock for him to come to Beirut because Beirut's a lot more diverse, but also just the sectarianism, uh, that was like just his whole education was very sectarian, like especially starting around 2003, he didn't even know before 2003, which is when the U S invaded Iraq, he didn't even know what a Shia was. He didn't know there was like a difference between, like, he didn't know there was like He's just like, some, like I mean, the majority, Jordan is almost entirely Sunni, Sunni Muslim. Um, but he, so he didn't even know what a Shia was. And then around 2003, as the Iraq war starts to happen, suddenly it becomes like, everything becomes very anti-Shia. And that includes like just education in school from your teachers. Um, that becomes a part of the curriculum. And so the point of bringing this up is that this kid has been brought up to, like since he pretty much can remember to hate the Shia for really no reason other than, what the U.S. has done in this region. The U.S. war in Iraq just like literally obliterated old identities and created new ones that have um, spread across the region in a really devastating way. This whole like Shia-Sunni divide, this like sectarian stuff. I mean, there's always been sectarian in the, sectarianism in the Middle East, just like there's always been racism in America. Um, but that said, what the U.S. did in Iraq... Um, and then intentionally by allying with Gulf states after what it did in Iraq to, to try and like, uh, you know, promote anti-Iran hatred by spreading like really almost like Nazi propaganda against the Shias across the region. Right. Iran is known as like the just to clarify for folks who, who may be sort of lost in this. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. If I'm like- no, no, that's quite all right. I mean, I, I think my audience is very smart, but we're going to do a lot of bottom feeding. So for the for those of you who are the experts out there, my my, my educated uh, majority, please don't be offended. I want to make sure we're covering all of our bases. We're not leaving anybody behind. So so, well, so, you know, so let, me, let me get a little more specific then in that case. Sure. Um, So Iraq is a country, Iraq is a country that is like about 60, I believe 60% uh, Shia, Shia Muslim. Uh, It has about, I think, a 20% Sunni uh, Muslim minority, Uh, unlike the rest of the region where Sunnis are like the majority. uh, Iraq is one of the few places where Shias are, in in the Middle East, I mean, are the majority. Uh, And then you've got other groups like the Christians, Yazidis, Shebek, and like, uh, and, and sort of like these like smaller, tinier minority groups. Uh, that are slowly being erased from the region. But regardless, that's the makeup of Iraq. When the U.S. uh, initially wanted to go and take out Saddam Hussein, the Bush administration's whole argument was that the Shias are being ruthlessly, like, ruled under the iron fist of Saddam, who's a Sunni, and that it's, like, a Sunni regime that treats the Shia... Like, it's like, we have to go save the Shias. They're, like, the Jews um, of Iraq and, and, and the, and the Saddam regime is like the Nazis. And so we have to go liberate the Shias. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because very, very quickly what happened is that as a result, I mean, the U S basically d- destroyed the Iraqi government. And when I say destroyed, I mean like they collapsed the government, um, completely disbanded the army, uh, this creative and destruction, Paul Brimmer put, was just ruthless. Yeah. Exactly. And they put in power a confessional system where, uh, where it's by sect. They put in power like a sectarian system that's a little bit similar to the U.S. And they put in power a, a religious, like a religious sectarian Shia 
uh, party that they basically like were the kind of like puppets that they went in and, and did, you know, the, the exiles, the Iraqi exiles that helped them do this, that helped them overthrow Saddam. And so they introduced, like I said, sectarianism has always existed uh, just under the surface. That said, not, not at least not in modern days, not in this level of like violent kind of bloody form, but they introduced those dynamics into Iraq. Um, and you had like, what happened is, you know, when you collapse a government and introduce anarchy and sectarianism into a country, uh, what happens is people kind of revert, revert to their primordial identities. Um, and, you know, for safety purposes, they revert to their tribal identities. Um, and you started having people like ethnically cleansing each other's neighborhoods. <laughs> um, it was really, really bad. And that, that was, that was what the civil war in Iraq was. It was Shia. It was like Sunni insurgency aligned with Al Qaeda. Basically Al Qaeda became like the Sunni insurgency was Al Qaeda, um, fighting with like these, uh, Shia militias. Um, uh, and it was solder, really, really the bloody. Solder and the, that type of, yeah. in parts yes. of Baghdad, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr and- was, was, uh, yeah, we, we, we saw this, you know, on ABC news Mahdi and Army. CNN, you know, in, in 2004, five, six, this was something, this was part of kind of like the, political- I mean, that was the peak of the civil war. That was the peak of it. But what happened, what happened is that those, the thing is that because of what the U.S. did in Iraq, because the, the whole, what part of the bigger part of the U.S. overthrowing Iraq is it had this list of axes of evil countries, right? Uh, but the real one it wanted to get to was Iran. The real one it's always wanted to get to is Iran, because Iran is sort of like one of the more stable countries in the region. It's a powerful, strong country. And it's only become stronger because of U.S. machinations in the region. But the point is, is the U.S. goes... Um, saying we're going to go save the Shia from evil Sunni Saddam. Um, that was like the narrative the U.S. promoted, which was a bullshit narrative, by the way. Uh, yeah. Now, were they trying to pr- promote like a third way, a third way Shia uh, sort of alignment away from the uh, Iranian? Well, I think Shia? That they, they didn't think it through. They didn't think it through. Okay. Like, because the thing is, Iran is majority Shia. Iran is like a country that's a Shia country. Um, and... And because of what the U.S. did, I mean, the Iranians ended up backing the Shia insurgency. <laughs> and it just made Iran more... Pa- like, And also, Iran is Iraq's neighbor. They've had a bad like history because the U.S. supported Saddam back in the day against Iran um, in a really bloody war in the 80s that took place between those two countries. Well, actually, kind of armed both sides, but it basically supported Saddam. But the point is, is God, it's like really hard to know where to start in history sometimes. Um. <laughs> that's good we'll start we'll go everywhere all of it we we'll gotta go do all of it all of it, at the same time. All, of it really all of it but the point is is so the u.s ended up making iran more powerful because it basically ended up opening iraq to iran um and then also the shias of iraq were under threat from al-qaeda i mean al-qaeda in iraq was really brutal and that was when al-qaeda really became a more al-qaeda was kind of always a sectarian organization like a pro-sunni organization but it became genocidal towards the Shia and anybody who wasn't Sunni, uh, or their style of Sunni, I should say. They're like sort of austere. That was like, uh, Zawahiri. Zawahiri. Yeah. Was was that um, the Z- and- Z- Zawahiri? Was the guy that we? No, 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 no. It was uh, Z- no, Zarqawi. Um, Zarqawi. Yeah. yeah. Zawahiri is like the okay. uh, the the new the guy who took over yeah, the number two who took over from uh, Osama bin Laden. Zarqawi was the guy who was like in charge of Al Qaeda in Iraq. Um, and he was like, this guy, actually, interestingly enough, he was Jordanian. 
Um, and he was sort of like a, a like a thug uh, who grew up in like a refugee camp who ended up in prison, like used to have all these tattoos and sort of was reborn in prison. Like it, it kind of like how people become born again Christians. He became a born again Muslim. Yeah. Um, which is basically Classic. like what Salafism is. They don't change much when they get out of jail. Yeah. They just they just use different words. Yes, right? exactly. And but he was always like pretty much a thug. And um, in Iraq, when he came to Iraq, uh, and he started like, and you know, he like it was he, what he was doing with basically making the Shia the enemy and blowing up their mosques and blowing up Shia civilians, <laughs> like even Al Qaeda, like even big Al Qaeda, even Osama bin Laden was like, whoa, whoa, dude, like, you know, we're not making friends doing this. Like, we don't like Shias either, but come on, you know. Um, so it was a little. He's like too- he's like Ramsey Bolton for fuck's yeah. sake. From Game of Thrones, right? Like t- he's like that. skinning his victims. He's skinning his victims Basically. alive, and his father's looking on like too far, Ramsey. And then next thing you know, father gets father's a knife dead. in the gut. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, spoiler, really spoiler alert for people who haven't seen. Oh that. please, yeah, if okay, they haven't sorry. watched it yet, they're never going to watch it. Um, That's your problem if you haven't seen Game of Thrones. By yeah. <laughs> Basically, like the Ramsey Bolton of Al Qaeda. Um, <laughs> this is good. Yeah, this is good. But so basically, this ends up empowering Iran in the region because they end up backing like the Shias against against um, the sort of like genocidal Al Qaeda. Meanwhile, at the same time, in 2006, you had this war between Hezbollah and Israel, and Hezbollah is considered to have won the war just for the mere fact that Israel had to retreat, and that's like a huge deal because Israel. Now, is, like, one now of what side is Hezbollah on? What side is Hezbollah on on this Shia Sunni? Uh... Okay, Hezbollah is a Shia group, uh, but that said, Hezbollah um, is also a I would say like a paramilitary group that functions as like a sort of defender of Lebanon because the Lebanese army. Lebanese army doesn't fight Israel. Um, the Lebanese army isn't in southern that well Lebanon, organized, right? Yeah, and in, in all of the, Lebanon, the part of Lebanon that shares a border yes. with Israel that's most under threat from like Israeli incursions. That's where Hezbollah. I mean, that's where Hezbollah's like base of support is, is southern Lebanon. Yeah, because that's. I mean, that's where the Shias have historically lived in Lebanon, uh, and also because that's Hezbollah formed as a reaction to the Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon, which people forget it was a thing, um, and that's why Israel was pushed out of southern Lebanon back in 2000 because of Hezbollah. And then in 2006, there was this war between Israel and Hezbollah, and of course, like Israel killed lots of civilians. Hezbollah actually did a lot of damage to Israelis and killed lots of Israeli soldiers and Israeli and, and, and you know Israeli civilians as well. Uh, but usually Israelis don't ever like suffer casualties like that. Uh, period. They got their asses. Kicked. They got their yeah. asses handed Hezbollah to them. Hezbollah gave it to them. Exactly. Yeah, and sure. I mean, I, I and and so the point is, is that Hezbollah actually after that became Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, uh, became one of the most popular figures in the Arab world. I mean, transcending sect popular. Uh, and this was a really, really big problem for the U.S. and the Israelis. At the same time, you know, you've got Iran who backs Hezbollah uh, being empowered in Iraq where the U.S. is like losing and it created a civil war crisis. And so the, um, you know, so basically Dick Cheney and um, What's his face? The jackass who was the like intelligence guy uh, at the time in Saudi Arabia, uh, Prince Bandar, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, uh, basically got together and like launched this effort to try and weaken Hezbollah and Iran because they were becoming too powerful and too popular in the region. Oh, and by the way, I should say at the uh, like there was like a st- there was a, a a poll done at some point like two thousand eight, two thousand nine or something. 
in Egypt, and two of the most popular figures were Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the former crazy guy leader of Iran, and Hassan Nasrallah. And I think the third one was like Khaled Meshal, the leader of Hamas. But the point is, is that you would never see that happen today, and here's why. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia... Um, embarked on this um, effort to basically stoke, to basically weaken Iran and Hezbollah by by uh, inflaming hatred for the Shia. They did it using sectarianism, mm-hmm. uh, and so this is the Shia crescent. right? Yeah, they call this the Shia crescent, which is like the axis of evil uh, in the in the Middle East. You know, right? For, for that was actually Western uh, and that, Saudi interests. Is that right? <laughs> the Shia crescent is a it was a term that was coined by King Abdullah of Jordan. Actually, I think it was like in two thousand five. It might have been two thousand three. Actually, after Saddam was killed, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyways, the point is, is that. Yeah, they, they, they built on this Shia crescent mentality. And basically, the, this, the Gulf states went into like effect, mostly Saudi Arabia, but eventually Qatar joined in as well later on. Uh, funding, what I would say is the equivalent of like Nazi propaganda, but instead of against shoot, like Jews, it's against Shia. And interestingly enough, a lot of the Gulf state-run propaganda has actually gone with this idea that the Shias are really a sect, a devil-worshipping sect that was started by the Jews, which I think is interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Wow. But no, it's wow. really bad. Wow. I mean, this this is the kind of rhetoric that exists, um, it, you know, in the Gulf-funded media. It's really, really bad, um, but it works. It's like, imagine, you know, you've got Fox News in the U.S. Look at the damage that Fox News does. Look at the damage that InfoWars does. Imagine if you had billion, like way more money being spent, way more than already is being spent on like beaming those kinds of messages into the brains of white Americans like 24-7 and imagine the damage it would do. And that's what happened in the Middle East. And so you had um, a lot of, you know, to make a long story short, this also meant empowering groups across the region that are sectarian such as the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, as well as Al-Qaeda-affiliated um, groups in Lebanon, um, in northern Lebanon. Because uh, these are, if you're going to, look, if you're going to empower groups that can oppose Hezbollah, you're going to empower, empower Sunni militia-type groups, and that means Al-Qaeda. Like, essentially, that's, I mean, that's like, you know, Sunni extremists is Al-Qaeda, and now ISIS. Um, and so that's what happened in the, in, in the region. And so my point about this boy that we started talking about, this Jordanian boy I met, is that this is the kind of hate that people since the Iraq war in this region have grown up on. And I'm not saying there's no hate from the other side. It's just not to the extent. Uh, there's not as much funding that goes into the kind of like, mm-hmm. like, like hatred that you get towards the Shias in this region. Every Shia is an Iranian fifth columnist um, agent that's potentially there to convert you um, and actually is from a sect that's not even really Muslim and maybe should even be killed and who cares if they're killed like these kinds of ideas Um, and that's not just towards the Shias who are a minority group in this region uh, but also towards um, other sects as well such as uh, Christians and Yazidis but I mean the most hateful rhetoric is really reserved for the Shia. And again, this all goes back to power play, like to a power dynamic and, and to power players uh, trying to weaken Hezbollah in Iran. And this is a political economic uh, thing as well. I mean, we talked, uh, I think with you and Ben uh, some months ago when I had you both on, and I've talked about this with Max Blumenthal as well, like something as simple as like, okay, who writes this, the textbooks in the schools? Who funds 
these textbooks and sends them free of charge to these schools and what's the propaganda in these textbooks i mean the same you know the same thing goes on in the united states right the way that that kids are taught like civil war history for example right as it was states rights not slavery and you know in the state of texas kids hear this shit right Mm -hmm. it's it seems like i mean it's a very so what i want to do is i want to bring this home like to people like because a lot of the criticism that you get is like oh this is really conspiratorial and the, the world doesn't really work like this and it's like actually it does like this is the same thing that you see in the propagandizing uh, in the bastardization revisionist history that goes on in the united Absolutely. states and that's how you change people's minds and and and, pro- and and promote white supremacy in 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 the new generations of of children or like you know um the the defense department funding you know co- doing free consultation for war movies you know, like Zero yeah. Dark Thirty and stuff like that. Like you're producing generations uh, that are ready and willing to go to war against brown people, right? Like, mm-hmm. or at least, or at least be indifferent, or at the very least, be yeah, or at the very least, be indifferent to it, um, to sure, be indifferent sure, to war. Right, right, right. With, but yeah, you're right. And you know, it's like it goes back to the identity politics, where power structures use identity to try and split people. Like, look, when it comes to. Um, when it comes to like Hezbollah, for example, they were such a popular group. There was popular support for this resistance, what they called the resistance access uh, against Israel, basically, and against American imperialism in the region. And now um, one of the worst things that's ever happened to the idea of resistance in this region is losing the Sunni majority uh, to this sectarian um, narrative that the U.S. and the Gulf states have been responsible for promoting to an extreme degree um and it really it has split people so much like to the point where you i mean in lebanon you have people you've like political groups that are pro-israel from the sunni side it's crazy it's really it's really i mean lebanon is a place where that and the thing about lebanon is it's not even like iraq because iraq does have a history of like sunni shia sectarianism but lebanon is a much more um Lebanon's not just a Muslim country. Lebanon has a large Christian population. In fact, during the civil war in Lebanon back in the 70s and 80s, the fascistic group was mostly the um, right-wing Marin- Christian Maronite groups. Um, mm-hmm. it, but, you, mm-hmm. but the point is, is it wasn't, I mean, there was like Shia groups and, and stuff like that, that, that like at the same time, the sectarianism historically in Lebanon hasn't been Sunni Shia the way it has been in a place like Iraq that was really manufactured by what the U S did in trying to promote the hatred for Hezbollah in Lebanon specifically. And so now you have a situation in Lebanon where, I mean, there's parts of Lebanon where like, like Tripoli, for example, where like people blame the Shia for like stubbing their toes. Um, they blame Hezbollah. Like if like, like, you know, like they blame Hezbollah for everything and Hezbollah is not even in Tripoli. Um, and they, you know, they call them the party of the devil. And it's just these, this wasn't like back in 2005, you would see like photos of Hassan Nasrallah in Tripoli, like he was glorified. So this is what identity politics does in this region, just like in the U S by, by like Fox news, um, or by like the right wing, or even sometimes liberals is it splits people. It splits people and it works. And it's really sad how effective it's been. 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is really, really great. This is good context. We're coming up on a half hour, so we'll have to move on from the contextual stuff. But this is, I mean, it's, it's really important to see, like, when, when, we, when we see numbers like $700 billion for this National Defense Authorization Act that was just passed, it's easy to only see, like, war material. It's easy to only see airplane, war planes, bullets, bombs, troops. Um, you, know, it, you know, it's easy to only see things like that and to miss... What I don't know, dare I say, are like more devastating effects, like more certainly more long term and intractable effects. Like bombs mm-hmm. kill people and it's brutal and they ruin and destroy human life. But what you're talking about is a reframing of the entire like ideological, political, and social terrain that that makes untangling this mess like so much more. Uh, you know, difficult. And, and, and so th- yeah, thanks for sharing that. That, that Well, I think it's also because we're, I assume we're going to talk about my, my article on the Yazidis and actually everything I just laid out has everything to do with why the Yazidis were genocided. Um, but sorry, I didn't mean, I just wanted to yeah. point that out. No, not at all. No, that's, that, yeah. So this is very relevant. That wasn't a, um, it wasn't much of a, um, tangent after all even though both you and i love our tangents don't we (laughs) (laughs) we like hearing ourselves talk it's fine i hope other people like hearing us talk as well i think they do at least sometimes so let's let's move on to your piece so yeah let's move on to your article um it was featured on alternate uh for in the gray zone project um, one of the few outlets that's still brave enough to like publish your stories. It's a <laughs> fucking travesty. I mean, like your, your pieces should be on the front page of the New York times. I mean, let's, and it, there's a Thank shift you. that's going on too. That's notable, right? Like I think I, I saw a piece, it was either in the New York times or the wall street journal for God's sakes, talking about the fact that it is now just known that Israel is giving support to Al Qaeda troops, Al Qaeda yeah, yeah, troops in journal. Syria. They're treating them in their hospitals and releasing them. So, like this, this stuff is is leaking into the mainstream, and and they're. I don't know if people are. are, are I don't know if people are developing a, a taste for this. If they're if if they're seeing that this is just what's going on. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see you in in more mainstream pieces. Or <laughs> yeah, we'll rather, see. We'll you know, see in the future. Maybe yeah. one day. But for now, um, but I do have to say, like alternates, the gray zone. Max Blumenthal has been one of the few people who's been willing to like keep me around. So I do appreciate that. And willing to give me a platform. In in whatever way I can, I'm happy to give you a platform. It's just a crying well, fucking shame you. that you're not getting a much <laughs> bigger one. So your your piece here, um, it's been titled. Uh, in the field with Yazidi fighters, tales of genocide at ISIS's hands, and more conflict to come. Quite a mouthful. Uh, the summary here is Yazidi fighters are joining the Iraqi-run PMF in droves and see a new war on the horizon. So you tell a story that is runs fairly contrary to what we've been hearing. Uh, everybody, well, a lot of folks will have heard of the Yazidi genocide that happened. They were sort of holed up in a mountain top is the sort of narrative we were given um sinjar mountain um mm-hmm. three years ago and uh isis overran their towns and it was a real tragedy a real tragic uh, story of women and children being sold into slavery men being slaughtered so let's start with your entry into this uh, story uh, how did you get involved in this story and, and tell us what you found 
Well, so um, the opportunity came to me because the Yazidis, I was going to, I was planning on going to Iraq uh, and I wanted to embed with the popular mobilization forces or in Arabic, it's called the Hashid al-Shabi, but in English, popular mobilization forces. And this is a paramilitary group that, um, that basically formed after the, after ISIS took large swaths of Iraq. Um, it was, a, it formed as a direct result of that. Uh, and it had, it had a lot of backing from Iran. Um, and Iran backed it, backed the PMF as it's called, uh, because ISIS presented an existential threat to Iran as well, because ISIS wants to wipe out Shias everywhere. Um, and also just like wants to stoke chaos and take over everything. Uh, and is a fascistic group that wants to expand its caliphate. Anyways, so I wanted to embed with the PMF and, um, and it turned out that Yazidis have been joining, uh, the PMF in droves. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of them even are defecting from like these Kurdish militias to join the PMF. And because the PMF back in May liberated um, like 40, like what the part of Sinjar, South Sinjar was all still under the control of ISIS. And so they liberated it. Uh, the PMF has actually been one of the most, it has been the most effective fighting force against ISIS and it saved the country from ISIS. Uh, the US media demonizes the PMF as this like ultra sectarian, Shia like militia that is backed by Iran and just wants to like ethnically cleanse Sunnis. Uh, but they're Iranian puppets, right? Yeah, they're Iranian this puppet puppets. regime, uh, right? <laughs> exactly. But um, what I would say is that the PMF in, in reality is actually more like it functions more like a national army. It's definitely not. I wouldn't call it militias. I would call it at the least paramilitary forces um, that function as it like as like a proper army, really. And it. Since last year, the PMF has fallen under the authority of the Iraqi prime minister, um, and it has been like integrated into the Iraqi military structure. So it is a Iraqi institution. It always has been an Iraqi institution. And yes, it is majority Shia, but Iraq is majority Shia. So any large institution you have in Iraq, if it's going to be representative of Iraq, is going to be majority Shia. Just you know, That's just the way it's going to be if you're, it's going to be representative of the country. But also there are several units um, and brigades in the PMF that are not Shia, that are actually, there's like 30,000 Sunnis um, in the PMF. Uh, there are, I believe, like a thousand Christians in the PMF. There are a couple thousand Shebek in the PMF. These are, uh, these are different minority groups. And now there are like probably at this point 1,500 Yazidis um, in the PMF. Uh, and Yazidis started joining the PMF because the PMF, like I said, liberated South Sinjar. And Yazidis, interestingly enough, everybody cared about their genocide in 2014. They were, I mean, that's why people know who the Yazidis are. They're this like really obscure minority sect that no one had ever heard of until 2014 when ISIS launched this like systematic pre-planned um, uh, attack on Sinjar where the majority of Yazidis live. Um, in an effort to wipe them out, uh, wipe out their men and enslave their women um, in a process to basically Islamize them, like to, to force them to convert to Islam. But it, as, it, as Yazidis, they, they also turned them into an economy and justified um, enslaving them as sex slaves. Um, I mean, what happened to these people is it, it, like, it's like incomprehensible. Uh, it really, really, really is. I mean, I talked to a lot of survivors and I was just like shocked of about what humans are capable of doing to other humans. But the point is, is that their genocide, the fact that the Yazidis faced like this ISIS attack is kind of well known because they received a lot of attention. The U.S. used it as a reason to basically intervene against ISIS um, back in 2014. 
But since then, all we've really heard about the Yazidis is like stories of atrocities committed against them. And the atrocities are so outrageous and shocking that it makes for good headlines. But nobody's really, you know, uh, delved into why this happened to them, how this happened to them. And the fact that they're still experiencing an extreme degree of repression as we speak, the UN describes what happened to the Yazidis as an ongoing genocide, as in it's still continuing. Um, And one of the most shocking aspects, I think, about the story of what happened to the Yazidis is that the Peshmerga, which is the Peshmerga is the um, the U.S. backed like Kurdish militia forces uh, that operate as like the army of Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, which is like the semi autonomous region in Iraq where Kurds live. um, And and basically the people in charge there want to create like a Kurdish state. Um, and so the Peshmerga Sinjar is one of these like 26 disputed areas, as they call them, which are areas that the Kurds want to claim, the Kurds claim, the Iraqi Kurds claim is a part of what they want to create as Iraqi Kurdistan, a separate state that secedes from the country of Iraq. Um, and so Sinjar is one of these areas. And even though it technically falls under the authority of the Iraqi central government, the Peshmerga was responsible back in 2014 for security in Sinjar. They had checkpoints all across Sinjar. They were there with their weapons. And the, the very interesting thing that happened is that the day that, like, the, basically Mosul was taken, fell to ISIS in June of 2014. A few days later, Talafad fell. Then Baj fell. These are all areas that surround, surround Sinjar. And so all of these big cities and smaller cities around Sinjar slowly, one by one, fell to ISIS. And so Sinjar was basically surrounded by ISIS forces. But the Peshmerga is very well armed, it's well trained, and was very capable, not like the Iraqi army, it was actually very capable of defending Sinjar. And they promised to. They promised, you know, their leader, Masoud Barzani, he even said, you know, I'm going to defend the Yazidis because the Yazidis were getting really concerned <laughs> for the fact they were surrounded by ISIS and they're this minority community. Uh, but for some reason, um, in the early hours of August 3rd, when ISIS launched its attack on Sinjar, the Peshmerga, and I mean in mass, not just a couple units because they couldn't handle ISIS, but in mass in a very organized fashion, retreated from Sinjar, took their weapons with them, even told some Yazidis they would be back. They were just going to get reinforcements, but then never came back. And so the reason that the Yazidis had to flee to the mountain is because they were completely defenseless. The people who were supposed to defend them left. Like, they, 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 I mean, it was orders from the top. Until this day, there has not, like, a sufficient explanation has not been given for why that happened. Uh, and I was really shocked by this, but strangely enough... Um, no one, I mean, the first, strangely enough, the Peshmerga is for some reason like it's romanticized uh, in the US media, probably because it's US backed. But even among some people on the left, it's romanticized. I can understand yeah, They're why. the good Kurds, right? In, in the American foreign policy circuit, anyway, the Peshmerga are the good Kurds. Whereas, you know, I don't know, maybe the PKK the or The PKK other is like terrorist or something because Turkey doesn't like them. Right. Yeah. Well, it's amazing and so just to be clear, I, I, can I clarify yeah. something really quickly? Yeah. I'm sorry, just for the sake of my audience. I, I, I'm really, I hate to keep cutting you off, but I want to be, no. you, you speak this stuff so fluently. I want to be, I want to be sure that my audience is picking up at all of the distinctions here. So just clarify for me, the, the Peshmerga rep are Kurdish, right? They are Kurds. They are the Kurdish forces in Iraq. Um, they aspire to an independent uh, Kurdish nation, Kurdistan, if you will. 
Um, the Yazidis are not Kurdish, in, but they are somewhere in between. So maybe explain that because that seems to be the, the main sort of rift of contestation. That's, no, that's a really, really good question. The Yazidis actually speak a dialect of Kurdish. That's like their dominant language. Some Yazidis don't even speak Arabic. Um, so, so that's just like, just to clarify, prior to 2014, the Yazidis actually did see themselves as a part of the Kurdish project. Um, some of them even saw themselves as Kurdish. So they, they, they are very like proud to identify as Yazidis and their, their Yazidi identity is something that's very distinct for them. Like they don't see themselves as a mass. They don't see themselves as Kurdish. They don't see themselves as Arab either. They see themselves as Yazidi. And actually, what Yazidis will tell you is that a lot of Kurds used to be Yazidi. And again, Yazidis are religion. But they'll say a lot of Kurds used to be Yazidi, but over like the past few hundred years, they've been, because there's been these like, these like forced conversion campaigns, especially under the Ottoman Empire. Um, so a lot of, so like a lot of these Kurds went from being Yazidi to like being, um, Sun, you know, to, to converting to Sunni Islam. Uh, even some Kurds will admit that to you, will admit to you that their grandparents or great grandparents were in fact Yazidi. Uh, so there is like, there is some truth to that. Um, there used to be, actually Yazidis used to be a lot bigger of a group. They, they used to be a lot more Yazidis. I mean, it's a pre-Islamic religion. Uh, it's like an ancient community. Um, and one of the reasons that it is so, it is so, um, like Yazidis can't marry outside of the Yazidi faith or they're not considered Yazidi anymore. One of the reasons it is such a closed off religion and that there's not a lot known about it is because first of all, it's passed down orally. Like it's like through, passed down through oral tradition. And second of all, the Yazidis have faced an extreme degree of persecution as a lot of minorities in the region have over the past several centuries. I mean, just being minorities in any region, you tend to get kicked around. Um, but they have faced, I mean, this isn't the first genocide they faced, for example, uh, and this is like something that's very dominant in their collective memory too. Uh, one guy even said to me, "Every couple hundred years, they 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 like they have no, they, every couple hundred years they have to massacre us." That's what he said. Um, wow. wow! But the but so the point is, is yeah, Yazidis did prior to 2014, they did consider themselves like they aligned with the like the Kurdish government and they considered themselves a part of the Kurdish project because they saw that as like sort of the best way for their community to like be safe um, at the time. And like uh, gain access to like better economic opportunities. I mean, things like that. Uh, but after 2014, um, Yazidis, I mean, even the Yazidis who are inside the KDP, the dominant party in Kurdistan regional government, um, will tell you that, that they blame the Peshmerga for the genocide. They might not say that out loud because Iraqi Kurdistan is a proper police state. Uh, but they, they really do, the majority of Yazidis, they blame the Peshmerga for what happened to them in 2014. And it was the PKK, the Syrian, actually the Syrian branch of the PKK, which is the YPG. God, there's so many fucking acronyms. Right, right, I mean, right. seriously, this is the, the really the big downside to the covering anything involving the Kurdish issue is these acronyms are so difficult to keep up with. Anyways, Kurds, stop yeah, using yeah. so many let's, acronyms. Let's, could you let, like, let's stop? let's distinct let's let's distinguish these right like let's 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 break these <laughs> down for the some. for the peeps. <laughs> yeah. So why so, YPG is a branch of the PKK in Syria in northern is, Syria. So which is yeah. So the PKK is go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was, was going to yeah, say like exactly. The, the PKK is basically like an international. Oh, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you. I'm not. I'm not an expert here. Oh, I didn't know. The PKK is like. I'm, a, I'm feigning confidence. <laughs> I'm hoping that you'll back me up here. Come on, help help a brother out. The, P, the PKK. Who's the PKK? Is basically a, a leftist. Um, <laughs> it's a leftist <laughs> international like Kurdish um, 
movement that was started by a guy who was being like who's like in solitary confinement in Turkey now. Um, and Turkey considers oh, the nice. PKK a terrorist organization, and and so as an ally of Turkey, the U.S. and the U.S. does as well. PKK. Correct? Is that? Yeah, the PK, okay. consider the PKK a terrorist organization and the YPG by extension. So that actually the U.S., uh, you might have heard of something called the SDF. Let me introduce another acronym for you. The SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, is actually just another name for the YPG in Syria. It's just a way for the U.S. to basically fund the PKK in Syria without um, being considered like a funder of, uh, of a group that's considered a State Department recognized terrorist Because right, we're giving them air support. We're giving them air support, well, right? Weapons. Technically, and the weapons. YPG, which we can't call them the YPG because when we give them air support, well, we can't support terrorist organizations, right? Well, the Turks are pissed about it. The Turk, the Turks are pissed. Piss pig granddad or whatever, yeah, um, was has which you know he has a mixed legacy. I think now maybe <laughs> he he looks back on that. I think he himself looks back on that. Yeah. <laughs> Brace Belden is his real name, and he he doesn't have, from what I can tell, he doesn't have a really glowing review of the YPG, like as a, as an actually existing political entity. It's not this like anarchist paradise. It's, so it turns out, shocker, it's more Whoa, like a cult. Look, it's, of course, um, <laughs> I don't know if I call it. A, I don't look. I don't know. I've, I here's my thing: is I had I didn't get a chance to go to northern Syria and spend any time with the YPG to be able to tell you what they are or what they're not. Um, all I can say is that in terms of how the Yazidis feel about them, uh, the back in 2014, when ISIS surrounded them, the Peshmerga retreated, Yazidis were like, oh, fuck, and they ran to the mountain, and they were, they were besieged on the mountain. Like, the ISIS intentionally besieged them to cause as much death as possible by not allowing any food and water through. Um, it was the PKK, well, it was the Syrian PKK, which is the YPG, that opened the border uh, between Syria and Iraq so that the or so that the Yazidis like they opened a corridor so the Yazidis could flee uh, and so they went through Syria and walked basically to Iraqi Kurdistan and so in the context of the Yazidis there is a lot of goodwill from the Yazidis towards the YPG because they feel like they saved them uh, that said um, and there was a lot of Yazidis who because of that joined uh, the PKK there's a Yazidi branch of it as well if, hmm. just to introduce another acronym to you <laughs> there is a Yazidi branch of the PKK as well that controls a small stretch of um, northwest Sinjar uh, next to the Syrian border. Um, and they uh, obviously the Peshmerga hates the hates the PKK. So they've been the, the basically the dominant political party in Iraqi Kurdistan had been punishing the families of Yazidis. Um, who joined the uh, Yazidi PKK. And the only reason they joined, I mean, let me just be clear here. The Yazidis aren't, maybe some of them are ideologically into it, but for the most part, they will join whoever helps them save their families. Their families, they had, you know, their, their daughters, their wives, their children, their husbands, whoever were taken, kidnapped, being held captive by ISIS, and they want to save their families. And they also, after what happened in 2014, don't ever want to have to ever again depend on anybody else to protect them. They want to be able to protect themselves. So as, as they see it under the, for, from the Yazidi perspective, they will join any group that will arm them and help them get autonomy over their areas. And so for a while, they had been joining the PKK Yazidi affiliate. Uh, but then once um, the PMF came and liberated South Sinjar, uh, and the PMF back to the Iranian-backed uh, mean Shia militias that we're supposed to hate in the U.S. 
Um, once they liberated South Sinjar, the, the Yazidis started joining the PMF in droves and even defecting hundreds of, I met hundreds of Yazidis. Well, I didn't meet all hundreds of them, but there, I met several dozen Yazidis among the hundreds. But I met several dozen Yazidis of the hundreds who defected from the Peshmerga and the PKK to join the PMF. And they all had similar stories about why they did that. And they defected because, first and foremost, they, the PMF liberated their areas and are willing to train and arm them and help them defend their own areas and, and take, like, basically control of their areas. That's one. The second reason um, is uh, the, the Yazidis who, who uh, defected from the PMF, or I'm sorry, from the Peshmerga specifically, told me that the Peshmerga refused to allow them to fight ISIS. Um, and they, they, like, for years, I mean, the years that they've been a part of the Peshmerga, they have been, like, restricted by the Peshmerga leadership from fighting ISIS to take back their areas in South Sinjar. And so that was another reason. I mean, a lot of Yazidis really do believe that the Peshmerga had been collaborating with ISIS or negotiating with ISIS. Um, and some of them claim that they saw negotiations taking place uh, or collaboration taking place between the Peshmerga uh, and ISIS. I don't know if that's true or not. I wasn't there. The point is, is I'm just explaining to you like what the, you know, what, what Yazidis say. There's a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of suspicion, right? And distrust between the two, then I guess is really what, yeah. what your article is trying to, is trying to expose certain kind of rifts for like potential mm -hmm. future conflicts in the region for sure. Well, yeah. there's also the fact that the um, Yazidis also, and I have like, I have a couple more pieces coming out and th this kind of stuff will be revealed in these pieces, but the Yazidis also are pissed off at Iraqi Kurdistan for a number of reasons, not just the extreme repression they face there because they're, they're not considered a Kurdish. They're, and that's something that people need to keep in mind, by the way, when they support these sort of ethno-state projects. The Kurds, it's true, the Kurds in Iraq did suffer under Saddam. Um, no one's denying that. But when you want to make a state that is ethnically exclusive and there are people in your state that don't share that ethnicity you're going to have people that are extremely discriminated against. And that is the case in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, for sure. And Yazidis are a part, like, the, the, they're a group that is extremely repressed there, uh, that a non-Kurdish group. The same goes for the Christians. And they, and I spent time in Iraqi Kurdistan, the minorities there feel very imposed upon by the Kurds. Um, and I felt it myself. I mean, and I, I mean, like, I, I understand the reason why, but there is a lot of, like, um, anti-Arab hate. I understand why. I understand the Ba'ath regime was really terrible to the Kurds. Uh, that said, Barzani was like tight with Saddam and like aligned with him even after like he gassed the Kurds. But okay, anyways, besides the point. No, but I think that's important, right? So let's let's touch on that for just a brief second then, right? Because I think what we really want to demystify this kind of identitarian ethnic conflict because why, I mean, it's, it's totally, it's totally, um, acceptable and, and almost essential that we speak in these ways, that we talk about the Yazidis, that we talk about the, the Iraqi Kurds and the Peshmerga. But like, as you well know, like it's not, they don't, it's not that purely their identity that's driving these conflicts, right? There are deep seated, like political and economic, like conflicts, like class struggles, intra class struggles yeah. that are playing out between like the Barzani faction and, you know, the PMF faction, right? Like the, you're talking, like these aren't, you know, traditional nation states. These are, we're in a, and we're in a time of flux. And so you're talking about economic supply chains, uh, trade mm -hmm. agreements that are going on, you know, 
different, you know, ways of, of exerting power in the world, right? And it's, mm-hmm. it just so happens that the way these are projected into into the discourse is, you know, via the well, identity yeah, so or the, the ethnicity. The, the areas, the areas, no, it's good you mentioned that because the areas that I mentioned 26 disputed areas and I put disputed in quotes, areas that the, the Iraqi Kurdistan government uh, claims as a part of Kurdistan. Um under the cover of ISIS chaos, because uh, ISIS took over all these areas, uh, the Iraqi Kurdistan regional government uh, basically almost do- like it, it basically like uh, increased the size of the territories it controls. Uh, of these 26 disputed territories, it took like 90% of them um, wow. during the ISIS chaos. And that is why that's why the PMF, that's why there's such a, a conflict now growing between the Iraqi central government uh, and the Kurdistan government is because they're trying to have this, re- Barzani's trying to force this referendum to vote on independence. And and he's doing it in areas where there's like, uh, there's minorities who are boycotting, who are saying they're going to boycott the referendum because they don't want to be a part of Iraqi Kurdistan, Kurdistan because they're not Kurdish. Uh, there's also areas like Kirkuk, which is very oil rich that they're trying to claim as their own. Um, and, you know, the Iraqi government's like, no, that's, that doesn't belong to you. Uh, and so that, that, yes, these conflicts are about economics. And then also it's important to remember, too, that the whole Kurdish project is something, especially in Iraq, that has been backed by the U.S. Uh, and by Israel, by the way, um, because they see it as a way to push their interests in, in this very oil-rich region. So there's all of these factors to consider when it comes to these kinds of things. And it's really bizarre in like places like the U.S. when there's people who like really just don't, and I understand why they don't know any better because this stuff is really like, really like complex and complicated and there's a lot of acronyms involved. Um, but they tend to glorify and romanticize the whole idea of Kurdistan without recognizing how much, um, like how much violence is required to make uh, ethnostates <laughs> and to impose ethnostates in areas that are not like homogenous. <laughs> Um, they don't, they don't just come homogenous and already split like up perfectly. They, these people are all mixed in together. And the other things I want to say, the other thing I want to say about Iraqi Kurdistan specifically is that there's also this idea that the Peshmerga are really feminist. Um, I didn't see the kinds of women I see in the videos on Twitter. I know there's like YPG women. I didn't meet the YPG and I'm sure there are YPG women. That's like a different side of this. So people who love the YPG don't come, it's like keep people come, keep coming at me who like love the YPG being very upset about my article. And I didn't even write about the YPG. But when it comes to the Peshmerga and specifically Iraqi Kurdistan, it's very conservative in the areas that I went there are run by the, like the Barzani family party. I, I never, I didn't go to Salimania. So like, I don't know, you know, how the PUK area is. I hear it's less conservative, but still really conservative, but it's just as conservative and religious as the rest of Iraq, in my opinion. And um, and it just, it didn't look like what you, like Erbil is always like really romanticized as like this like Western Dubai kind of city. And I didn't get that feel at all. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to like throw that out there too, that it's uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, at least in the areas that I was. Uh, I, in fact, the Yazidis complained that they couldn't wear tank tops. Um, the Yazidis in Dahuk, they complained they can't wear tank tops in the hot weather in Dahuk uh, because of the, the Muslims. That's how they put it. Also, that's another thing because of what happened with ISIS. Yazidis hate Sunni Muslims. Like they, they hate, loathe, and 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 fear Sunni Muslims. And Iraq and, and Iraqi Kurds are Sunni. They're Sunni Muslim. Um, and some of them did join ISIS. Not a lot because I think Kurdish nationalism sort of like 
um, overshadows any sort of other identity issue, at least. But there are Kurds who did join ISIS um, uh, because of like sort of like this kind of like Sunni extremism that uh, exists in Iraq. Um, But that said, like Yazidis, so Yazidis now after the 2014 genocide, they're terrified of living anywhere where they're outnumbered by Sunnis. Um, and they see Kurds as first and foremost as Sunnis. And so there's like a new, a new level of suspicion and distrust from that angle as well. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that they're right to feel that way. Again, I'm just explaining like the, the, the feelings, the sentiments of, of Yazidis mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. living, living in Iraqi Kurdistan. It's, it's really fucked up. It would happen to them. And based on and everything we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, Adam, like, about um, the U.S. sort of uh, funding and promoting Sunni extremism in partnership with Saudi Arabia to demonize the Shia, that also meant uh, basically spreading and empowering Salafi- like Salafism, which is just like really far right wing, austere version of Sunni Islam that is like basically like a similar to Wahhabism. Uh, I think Wahhab you could call like Wahhabism like a a sort of like branch of Salafism, if you will. Um, and the, and and Salafism is really like it's it's a very it's based on a lot of hateful ideologies. It's very anybody who's not my kind of Muslim isn't a real Muslim. Um, and this is kind of like the foundational basis of a lot of ISIS's beliefs, Al Qaeda's beliefs, basically Salafi jihadi groups. This is where they get their ideas from. And so by spreading and promoting this um, across the region, uh, the U.S. create like helped create the problem. Where then you've got Yazidis uh, surrounded, and this is—I have a piece coming out on this. Um, the people who did this to the Yazidis, the people who enslaved their women, who initially launched the attack on them and killed the men—it wasn't necessarily official ISIS. Um, it was planned by official ISIS, uh, mostly people in Tel Afar in Iraq. But the people who carried it out, the foot soldiers, a lot of them were their Sunni neighbors, like. Like I talked to survivors, one girl, for example, her, um, she was telling me like in the prison that she was held in in Tel Afar, which is where a lot of Yazidi girls were initially taken before being sold. Uh, one of the guys, one of the ISIS guards who was, who was basically keeping them there was her high school biology teacher. Like, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, in another case, like another girl, who survived her sisters she just are still in captivity or dead but she survived she like escaped 45 days after she was captured her neighbor of 25 years their neighbor of 20 like neighbors of 25 years the men in the family the neighbors of 25 years they they they're the ones who basically surrounded their house refused to let them flee the Yazidi the their Yazidi's neighbors they didn't let them flee and then they basically gave the men to ISIS and kept the women for themselves. Like, and split them among the, the dad and the two sons. Like, it's like people wow. like who were friends. I mean, people who ate together. I'm, and this is, this is the really like scary part about how this went down is um, that it, it, it was their neighbors that did this to them. And it wasn't, I'm not saying it was all their neighbors. I, I did have a hard time finding stories of like, of like local Sunnis who help, but they did. There's, there's local Sunnis who, and some of them, I mean, I'm sure people also maybe didn't help too, because they are also under duress as well. Like ISIS, you know, killed people, killed Sunnis for helping Yazidis. Um, that said, it, it's like, it's really, um, when you, when you think about that and then think about like what I just talked about, where you have people for the past 
20 years uh, growing up in an in like um, an edu- in an environment where their sectarianism is pushed onto them. They're indoctrinated with it because of these kind of Salafis ideas that like Saudi Arabia, the U.S. have helped promote and sort of just the Islamization of the region. Um, you can see how when a group like ISIS takes over and wants to make a caliphate, um, how some locals like might have joined in, even if it was against their friends, because now it becomes about identity. Um, and I mean, if, if, that, if that's hard to comprehend, I mean, maybe think about it in the context of the U.S. If like the KKK or the alt-right was able to take over like some small town in America, you would have locals who were sympathetic to them and might even turn on their you know minority neighbors or whatever and help do really atrocious things to them based on purely on like a fascistic ideology um, around identity. Totally, totally. Uh, that's what happened to the Yazidis. And so that kind of goes back to like, how the region that seven hundred billion dollars, I guess we started talking about. Um, yeah, right, right. You that's know, what happens. it's like that's what happens. Yeah. It's, not, it's it's it goes beyond exactly. the bombs and the guns. And I mean, you, this is a similar story that you, you you hear, you know, back in Rwanda and the Rwandan genocide in the nineteen nineties. You know, where the mm-hmm. Hutu and the Tutsis, you know, uh, sort of turned on one another, and neighbors were hacking neighbors yeah. with machetes. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it, it, this goes back to every conflict that's ever existed, right? And I think this is a really important story because, uh, first of all, it really counters this narrative that, like, ISIS is this external threat that invades space and then takes over this virginal, pure space. Mm-hmm. And then once they're expelled, then they're, go- you know, it's, it's just this really simplistic like narrative. And, you know, then you'll see maps like CNN will show you a map like this is where ISIS is right now. And it's like, look, that's maybe, you know, that we're at the limits of we're at the limits of representation. Yeah. Like, well, it's able to do that also. Yeah. With help with help from locals. But also, I want you to understand this as well um, in this context, like uh, when we're talking about like the local support I went to, I, I, okay. Like I only got the Yazidi side of like, cause I mean, Yazidis will tell you 90% of our Sunni neighbors joined ISIS. And I'm like, okay, that's, I'm sure it wasn't 90%, but that's extreme. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's how they feel. That's how they like, that's what I say. They really loathe and fear Sunnis now. Uh, that's, that's the extent of it. They will never ever like trust living next to them again or within like where they're outnumbered by them again. But I mean, I went to go, I went to a refugee camp to go meet with, um, basically Sunni Arabs who had been displaced from Sinjar, uh, to get their side of the story. Um, and I was really shocked by what I heard. Um, first of all, like going through the areas, the Yazidi areas that were under ISIS control. And I also visited like women, like Yazidi prisons for Yazidi women, um, that really like had a very concentration camp feel to them. I mean, it really, it's like, it's like, I felt like I was visiting like less, like, like concentration camps in the desert. It was really striking, but, um, like piles and piles of shoes and hair. And it was just anyways. Uh, but, but like I, so I go to try to get the other, the, the Sunni Arab civilian side of the story. And I, it really, honestly, I don't know how else to put it other than to say, it felt like I was talking to Germans after the Holocaust. Um, I mean, it was like, basically this is like the, the narrative I heard from everybody, almost everybody, except for one guy, was the Yazidis hate Sunnis and Arabs. They want to ruin our reputation. And so they're making up lies about us. The Yazidis, half of them joined ISIS, and they enslaved their own women and wow. killed their own men. We, and, um, and, and now they're trying to blame Sunnis and Arabs for it. 
and we're the ones who were persecuted the most under ISIS, more than the Yazidis, um, and the Yazidis are the ones killing us. And it's like, this is, this, this is a really shocking narrative to me because the Yazidis have no power, <laughs> like, like none. Because like, you kind of, I mean, like Sunni Arab civilians can accuse people of, of, of like, of like bombing them and shooting them. They can accuse all kinds of communities of doing that. And it would at least make logical sense. Even if it wasn't necessarily true, it would make logical sense. But the Yazidis have no power. They've always been a disempowered, disenfranchised, very poor, very uneducated rural minority group. Um, and this goes back to something else. In the U.S., the idea of ISIS is constantly, especially by the think tankers, but also by journalists as well, um, they always say, oh, ISIS was a reaction. ISIS was um, a response to Shia sectarianism in Iraq, to the evil big bad Shias in Iraq were mean to the Sunnis. Um, so but the Alawites in Syria were mean to the Sunnis. Um, these narratives are not accurate necessarily. Uh, she, like in Iraq, it was Shias and Sunnis were both bad to each other. It was definitely more tit for tat. And on the Sunni side, it was more genocidal because of the involvement of Al-Qaeda, which has a genocidal ideology. And in Syria, the regime might have an Alawite president, but it definitely is a Sunni regime. Uh, so that's not accurate whatsoever, an accurate reflection at all. The point is, is that everybody in the U.S. constantly says ISIS is a response to people, to, to different sects, minority sects specifically, being mean to, to Sunnis. Now, this is what's, the, the, the Yazidi issue completely, like, pokes a big hole in what they call the Sunni marginalization thesis. Because the Yazidis never did anything to anybody. They were an unarmed, defenseless community that was deliberately attacked and enslaved. Um, and so after, like, it's just shocking to me how people are in the U.S. because of their own, like, like desire to push U.S. foreign policy objectives, which are anti-Iran. They go along with these ridiculous notions that, that like, a genocidal fascistic group arose solely because of Sunni marginalization. I'm not saying that Sunni marginalization, whatever that fucking means, I'm not saying that that has nothing to do with it, okay? What I'm saying is that it's like they want to blame it solely on that and nobody wants to look at the ideological roots of this. Why did this happen? And this happened for a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons is there's an ideology here that nobody wants to talk about. And that is the sort of Wahhabi Salafi style shit that I keep getting called an Islamophobe for bringing up. People were genocided because of this. People, women were enslaved. They were literally turned into sex slaves. Like, like they were raped with their children in the room with them. They were treated like fucking chattel in a way like like chattel slave like it's like a, like it's like a, it's shocking that this happened in 2015 2016 2017 that women were treated this way i mean the stories i heard like you cannot believe and they asked well why are you doing this to me why are you doing this to me and they all had the same answer everybody i asked i asked like what did they tell you when you asked this and it was always the same answer it was your yazidi you're an unbeliever. You're a kafar. You're, this brings us closer to Allah. This brings us closer to Islam. These are all bullshit ideas that come from an ideology that the U.S.'s number one ally in the region he spends billions of dollars spreading. That's, like, that's where it comes from, this dehumanization, this, like, this like, hate, this genocidal hatred. And we're not even allowed to talk about that because now I'm an Islamophobe. If you, like, it's just it's shocking on so many levels. 
Right. So let me let me cut in because this is a really great. So we can move away from your article now. Uh, the the conclusion is really um, um, provocative, or or it's it's kind of a a cliffhanger, right? Because the conclusion of your article is to say like, well, the Yazidis are rushing into the PMF, uh, which is upsetting the Peshmerga and the Kurds because they were trying to institute their own state, Iraqi Kurdistan. And whereas the Yazidis are siding with the PMF, which is a more Iraqi nationalist kind of force. And so there's this ongoing kind of rift. Uh, as you mentioned, you've reported a lot of the Yazidis are saying Peshmerga is ISIS. Now, whether there's any truth to that or not, it doesn't matter. That's the suspicion. As you mentioned, some of them are well-founded suspicions. Uh, so there's, there are a lot of rifts that are opening up there. A lot of even new brand, even, you know, like this is even the newest generation of sectarian struggle that we're about to see crop up potentially as, yeah. as, you know, as the manifestation of what are actually nationalist and political economic projects, which is to say, you know, the Barzani faction uh, trying to institute Iraqi Kurdistan and in and, 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 and all of the oil in Kirkuk and elsewhere. And then, of course, the Iraqi state trying to uh, prevent some of that. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to part one of my interview with Rania. Sorry for the abrupt ending there, but the next part that I will release in a few days' time will cover part two of this discussion where you will see that we are heading in the direction of these false accusations that have been launched at Rania and her co-thinkers regarding the claims that she is Islamophobic because she is calling out Salafi and Wahhabi Islam and fascistic rule uh, that is being implemented by ISIS and some of these other far-right uh, you know, military forces in Syria and elsewhere. So look forward to that. We go all the way in. We were fairly diplomatic on part one. Part two, uh, you know, we start throwing elbows and we get real. So you all uh, look forward to that. I actually, part, if I had to pick one of the two, if you're like, hey, Adam, which is your favorite part of this interview? I would say, pfft. Part two. Part two is my favorite part of the interview. Definitely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I pick favorites and uh, I'll tell you about it. I'm going to be brazen about that. So get really excited about part two, people. It's coming your way. Once again, check me out on patreon.com slash dead pundits. If you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, who cares, people? Suck it up. You got to start getting used to hearing uh, things that you don't really agree with because the left needs to develop its arguments. And the only way to do that is to have robust debates. And uh, I hope that uh, this show contributes to that project uh, in a big way. So patreon.com slash dead pundits, smash that subscribe button, get con get all of our bonus footage and content and all that good stuff. You know what to do. Check me out at Twitter at dead pundits. Find me on Facebook press the like button. So part two is going to come your way in a few days on Monday. Check that out, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. The summer, I think, is officially over. It's very bizarre. We had a really great time here on Dead Pundit Society this summer. We had our anti-essentialism summer series 2017. I just wanted to be able to say that one last time because I think I've finally been able to say it without 
getting tongue-tied, and that's quite an achievement. But sadly, it's over. We're moving on to new things. I've got a new series coming this fall. It is fall, which means school starts again. And it is no different here at the Dead Planet Society. We're going to go back to school. I've got a five-part series. We're going to start with a, an episode on state theory that I have been threatening all of you with for the past couple of months. Then we're going to move on to four more episodes, starting from the New Deal into the Great Society. We're going to talk about the Democrats and the left in the 1960s. Then we're going to finish up with Bill Clinton and the Third Way. A lot of good stuff coming, people. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay tuned. Enjoy your weekend. I'll see you for part two on Monday. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother... Yeah.